Hello humans, welcome to Frontline, a leadership and business podcast brought to you by Peregrine Corporate Services, an Man based fiduciary provider. My name is Martin Hall and thank you for listening. Today I'm joined by Joe of FDS. Thanks for joining us today, Joe. My pleasure. Uh, just to uh, help the listeners get a little bit of background, perhaps you can let us know where you were originally sort of brought up in the schooling, schooling years. Okay. Um, brought up in Godstone country in Yorkshire. Uh, went to went to school there. Um, uh, went to Huddersfield Technical College because I wasn't good enough to pass the 11 plus and go to grammar school. Um, sadly, my mother died when I was quite young. Um, and uh, then my father's business went bust and um, the three-day week. And I think these are seminal moments that change your personality. So mm-hmm. it made me very driven, very independent and determined to succeed. So I wasn't particularly um, any type of bright spark at school. But um, when I went to Huddersfield Technical College, there was a wonderful inspirational teacher there who told me I could do anything I like. And um, I ended up uh, doing well in my A-levels and was the first of my family to go to university to study law. And then I went on to qualify. All right, okay. And what? why law particularly? Was that just an area of interest at the time? or uh, uh, To be honest, I think it was mostly that there was the teacher at the right. technical college. Um, he was an ex-barrister and he was extremely engaging. He made it sound very exciting and interesting and you know sometimes it just needs one person doesn't it to tell you what you are capable of and he and he inspired me it's it's interesting then so you, when you look back you mentioned there about your drive was that something you were aware of then at that age or it's maybe more in hindsight that you look back and realize those circumstances uh, created that drive I knew that I never wanted to be in the position where I was when I was a sort of a young teenager um, because of what had happened to my my mother and then my dad's business and I felt out of control and therefore I was determined that I would always be in charge of my own destiny. Okay so just a quick question a three-day week I've not come across that before what was that? That's because you're not old enough. <laughs> so <laughs> back in the 1970s when the miners were on strike all the uh, businesses went on a three-day week because they turned the electricity off at various points in a day. Okay, right. And my father was in, my father was in uh, children's clothing, making children's clothing, and obviously just couldn't operate the business effectively. Yeah. And, and so he went bankrupt. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, I've not, I've, not, I've not heard of that before. So then you move into working life. Where does that begin? Well, having been to university and then I trained as a lawyer, I realised it wasn't boring enough, so I went on to train to be an accountant. Uh, (laughs) um, And uh, I found that those two skills in sort of being able to speak lawyer and speak accountant put me in very good stead for a a career in the financial sector. And um, I worked originally for a, a company called Cannon Street Investments, who were um, an amalgamator of businesses, uh, had a buy-build strategy, and I worked with them as company secretary in finance and sort of were doing, helping them do their acquisitions and worked in-house at one of their businesses for quite a while. Mm. Um, And then, um, you know, I'm married now and I've got four children and uh, I'm thinking, I don't want to do this for somebody else. 
where I have no control now over my time or my life. And so I decided to set up my own company, which okay. is 30 years old this year. Right, okay. And where this was all based in the area you were brought up in, I assume? Uh, well, Cannon Street were in London, so oh, I was okay. working partly in London, partly in Yorkshire. Okay. Uh, but I set up my own business in Yorkshire, but I do have a London office and a Birmingham site as well now. So, so that step then into, in essence, becoming an entrepreneur, was that a, a daunting prospect at the time? I don't think I actually thought about it, to be honest. Uh, I mean, my mother had taken over my uh, grandfather's sheet metal engineering business when he died. You know, she was in her 20s uh, and had been a secretary before that. And then my dad had started his own business. And I, I suppose I came from this sort of, if you like, entrepreneurial family. But I think it was more sort of just, they were just running businesses. I'm not sure they thought of themselves as entrepreneurs and, and neither did I. I would think I am now because I, I, you know, I'm constantly thinking of new ideas and, um, and, I, and I have got a reasonable appetite for risk, although that changes as you get older. But I have taken lots of risk and I think that's what an entrepreneur does. Yeah, um, yeah. And I enjoy the journey. And, and did you have a clear, vi- like on day one, did you have a clear vision of what you were looking to achieve with that business? Of course I didn't, you know, I had no <laughs> idea at all. One of the things I've done in lockdown, actually, is I've written a book called, so, and I've written a few books, but this is one I've written recently called, So uh, You Want to Start a New Business, Do You? And um, I've been reflecting on my own journey on that, you know, everything from the name of the business to the branding to what I perceived it would do. But at the time, I just did it. (laughs) I I, I just wanted to be in charge of what I did when I did it. And um, I wanted to enjoy it and work for myself. But I I didn't have any grand plans, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, it, it's the um, it's the John Lennon song, isn't it? Life happens while you're busy making plans. Yeah, I, it's just interesting. You mentioned obviously, I don't know whether you had four kids at the time you set up that business, but even to have some children, and that I guess that again, one of the previous guests we chatted to was about that that big step into potentially not earning income yet having a family to support. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, what I did when I very first started is I, because I, I, I had, I had a fantastic job. You know, I had a great salary, um, flash car, and bonuses, and so there is, there is quite a jump to make there. Um, but what I did was I took a three day a week contracting job for six months mm. that gave me enough security to pay mortgage and bills and, and what have you. Um, but it gave me two days a week to explore the possibilities. After six months, I dropped that contract down to two days a week because they wanted me to stay on. And so I swapped it round. But that also then gave me more time. And funnily enough, the first person I, re- I recruited in my business was not another fee earner, but was a marketeer. Oh, because okay. what I, re- I realised was, is that it's all very well doing jobs for people, which I was loving. But when I was busy doing it, I wasn't marketing the business. And that was a bit scary because, of course, they weren't bringing any money. But then it just went absolutely, you know, it skyrocketed because she was bringing in all this work. And then I didn't have anybody to deliver it except me. (laughs) But it was a nice problem to have. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't regret that at all. Yeah, I'd imagine, uh, well, again, that's a, that's a big, uh, I wouldn't use the word risk, but a big... It's it not wasn't. A, yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah, I suppose it's not what you a lot of people would think is a logical step, like you say, so it's... it's it, it, was, it was a risk because, you know, that meant now, not only did I have to pay all my bills, but I also had to pay somebody else yeah, yeah. as well as myself. But it more than paid off. And that's because I got the right person to do it. Yeah, well, yeah, it's always important, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so the first year or the you know first period of that business, how you know what were you primarily focused on? What were you doing? Well, the FDS originally stood for Finance Direct Services. And what I was doing was the aim was to provide finance directors, stroke company secretary legal services into companies who were doing a transaction or who were going through a a period of high growth or even trouble and they needed some restructuring. Um, And that's what it was originally called. Now, when I did that, when I set up the business, that was quite an unusual model. Now it's it's a very well-trod path, but it it wasn't so much then. Uh, And again, I was reflecting um, on this when I was writing my book that the idea was I was going to populate my business with associates who would deliver these services but the, the the biggest problem I had is I couldn't find accountants and lawyers who had a personality I mean it, it is a bit of an oxymoron really to find people in those professions who who can sell and who are persuasive and who can help owner managers deal through problems because that's not what we were trained to do so I started to diversify because I couldn't find the right people and we started tagging on other things like non-exec director services training and development for boards where I could find people Um, and um, and that's how the business grew that was never in my plans you know was but it does happen because um, I couldn't find the right people to do what I was doing but I had to, and I wanted to, to grow the business. Okay. So maybe looking at some some of those things, like the, the, the non-exec roles, those types of things, maybe start with uh, something I was reading on, on your LinkedIn profile, maybe public speaking as a start. That's something you can help people with, for example. Well, I don't teach public speaking, but I speak at about 120 events a year okay. um, you know, for various organisations in-house and on open programmes. But I speak on governance, on board governance, okay. building world-class boards and on corporate finance and on finance for the terrified and, and that sort of stuff. I don't teach public speaking. Yeah, okay. There are plenty of people that do. But um, it's been that's also been um, a really positive addition to my business because if I speak on stage at some event or other uh, or do something in-house, they inevitably well, hopefully buy into you as an individual, it develops trust and therefore when they want other services that we can provide, they're much more likely to contact me. Okay. What what I was going to ask around public speaking was that, was that something that was natural to you or something you had to learn yourself? (laughs) No, wasn't natural at all. In fact, I remember when I started to decide to do this, I actually went on a public speaking course um, to, to, to upskill, really. And yeah. I still get terrible, terrible stage fright um, okay. whenever I'm doing it. And I mean, considering I speak at well over 100 events a year, I always have this sort of 
butterflies in my tummy before I stand on stage. Right. I think that's an important part of being a of being a, a good speaker that you don't take anything for granted. Yeah, yeah. So is that are you then often driven by again? We talk about that driven side of it, but you put, again, there you're putting yourself into an uncomfortable position on a constant basis. Do you feel for for anyone in in business, they need to do that on a regular basis? Well, I, I wouldn't say to make yourself uncomfortable. I would say you've got to push yourself. You know, you've got got to push the boundaries. Otherwise, it all becomes a little bit well boring. Really, right. um, I'm always striving to do something different. You know, I'm not somebody that's going to jump out of a plane with a parachute. That is not my idea of a thrill. Right. My idea of a thrill is to come up with a new business idea, and I've I've launched two new business divisions again in lockout, uh, in lockdown. Right. Um, uh, because I, I get bored. Yeah, right, right. Interesting. So so you mentioned there about building world-class boards. You maybe expand kind of the area, you know, what, what you achieve, what you do in there and how you achieve that. Pretty, um, pretty broad question, but... <laughs> Uh, well, building a building a world-class board is a bit like building a world-class marriage. You have to work at it, you know, um, and it takes... Um, all sorts of skills to create that high-performing group of people. You know, you need diversity uh, in all senses, not just age and ethnicity and gender, but thought. So, um, you know, you don't want people who necessarily have the same personality type. Unfortunately, boards are not generally like that. And if I do usually a little poll with a group of board members that I'm talking about so many of them are, are of the same genre okay and you need a diverse set of people around there you they need they need to understand what great looks like they need to understand what their role and responsibilities are and there's so many people who aspire to be directors without any understanding of what it means legally and um, let alone the responsibilities that they have you know on, a, on an individual basis yeah. and then you've got to work at improving it all the time so churn is an important part of board development you know nobody is in, immortal and um yeah few boards invest in succession planning yeah you mentioned churn then did you what yes did you that so you know if you've got somebody sitting on the board for 25 years and they haven't had any other external experience they're going to get stale yeah, okay. So you do need to have people come and go, not not like a revolving door, but you do need a certain amount of people bringing new ideas, even if that's just a non-exec quarter of the board, um, who are going to challenge and bring new contacts and new initiatives and, uh, and so on. And you can't do that if you sit on the same board all the time. In fact, you know, if you look at what the UK Corporate Governance Code says, it says that non-exec directors shouldn't sit for more than three three-year terms yeah okay and when you're dealing with uh i'd say more senior people how do you find and it's a subject i've been reading a bit about recently when, when you look at people's egos i think the reality is we all have them in some format uh i'd imagine you go into certain businesses and there's more of it how do you tend to happen you know what you, if you have to give advice to people to handle them people's egos 
everybody's got a certain amount of, of ego. I mean, including myself, you all want to be perceived as being the best possible. But um, I'm very careful who I work with. One of the tests I use for whether I'm going to work with the board or not is, could I bear to spend a long haul flight with the CEO in cattle class? Uh-huh. Am I going to get on with them? You know, do we share the same values? And if they're so egotistical that that won't work, then I'm not going to work with them. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm in a fortunate position maybe where I can pick and choose. Yeah, yeah. But um, we all have a certain amount of choice, and I don't want to work with egomaniacs. I mean, I have done over the years, but it's just usually been so chuffing miserable, as we say up in Yorkshire, that I'm not going to. <laughs> Life's too short to, to work with people that, I don't get on with they're not going to be my best mates yeah, yeah. looking to make these lifelong friends but I do want to get on with them I want I want us to be able to be able to talk honestly and openly have a row if needed um, and then and then move on and I can't well I'm not prepared to work with egotistical people yeah, yeah. and if you look at uh, I mean walk into any any board today or if you had advice for a board today to I guess they should always be reflecting on what they're doing. But if you had advice for them, have you got sort of, sort of key points that you'd always tell a board to be thinking about and considering? Well, I've already mentioned succession planning. One of the things I set out to do when I first start with the board is to say, what are the six critical things that you as a company need to achieve this year? Have you got them on the board agenda? Have you assigned responsibility for those tasks to board members? Are they reporting into the board about them? Um, and to think of those as the, well, I usually use the phrase to turn the gas up and down on the business. You know, if you deliver these things, the vision that you had at the start of this process, you will have delivered it. Yeah. But because because most boards are owner-managed boards and, you know, They've got different hats on. You know, they've got a shareholder hat on, a management hat, and a and a director hat on. They're never quite sure what role they're holding in a debate. Whereas, if you can get them to focus on the big critical success factors, then they will have a better performing company. The other thing is, I would say, you know, and and public companies have to do this per the UK Corporate Governance Code is to at least periodically have an external person come and review you as a board and give you some constructive, critical feedback and take it on board and do something about it. Yeah, okay. And, I mean, would you would you recommend that's a general it's good practice for it, whether PLC or not, but that's good practice? I think it is good practice. I mean, for, I think for a smaller company, you don't necessarily, you know, have to do it every year. If you're a public company, you have to do it every year, and every three years you have to bring in a third party to do it. But I think for a private company, it is something you should at least do every three years. Um, But you need to do it. There are loads of things on Google on board evaluations, but the best thing is to have an external person come in, talk to everybody, observe a meeting, and then give some constructive, critical feedback to make changes. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, you, it's all about self-reflection, and that's that's not going to be independent. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, when you look at uh, or we chat about NEDs, key kind of what do you expect to see as key roles of an NED? 
Um, the, the main role of a non-exec director is to constructively challenge the executives, to provide contacts, um, to mentor and support the CEO, um, if you're the chair, Ned, um, to be available, um, to, uh, to help the company keep on track from um, a, a planning point of view, mm-hmm. um, particularly in an owner-managed board, to keep them away from operational discussions in the board and focus on strategic targets um, and, and make sure that good governance practices are maintained. So you've got proper records, got a proper agenda, people are reporting in, they're held accountable, decisions are made. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Switch subject slightly. You mentioned there earlier about uh, uh, booking and you've had a number of publications. When you, when you all available on Amazon. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, that was one question. And then the other one, I suppose, out of all the ones, have you got a particular one that stands out for yourself? Uh, well, the one I wrote last year, and I usually try and write one a year. The one I wrote last year was how to be a world-class non-exec director, and that is just literally flying off the shelves. All right, okay. Um, and I think because there is this appetite for portfolio careers, but a lack of understanding of the difference between being a consultant and being a non-exec director, and it's a really practical book, uh, and that's doing really well. But the reason I've wrote this new book, which should be coming out sort of August, September, is because I think after COVID, there'll be an appetite for starting your own business. Okay. Um, and I've, again, I've made it extremely practical. This isn't um, you know, an academic text, because um, that's just not, it's written in my voice. Um, and it's based on my experience of experiences of, of what works and what doesn't. And, you know, in fact, um, my, my lovely assistant who's been typing it up said, this is more like memoirs, Joe. And I said, well, I started my business 30 years ago. It is a reflection on what worked and what, and what didn't. Yeah, okay. Let's come back to the books in a moment. You mentioned there people starting on businesses out, out of COVID. Your thought process behind why you feel that way? Well, I think there'll be a lot of people who will lose their jobs. Um, I think there'll be a lot of people who have been treat, not treated very well through this process. Um, and there'll be a lot of people go, I'm never going to be in this situation again. I am going to never be unemployed because I will employ myself and I may have, you know, high days and and low days. And I I reflect on that in my book, you know, there's been many times when I haven't been able to pay myself a salary, but there's been other times where I've had a fantastic lifestyle out of it. But I will never, ever be out of work. And that was important to me. And I think that will resonate with a lot of people after this. And to go back to the uh, book point, when, when you first looked at doing your first publication and book was that again you mentioned earlier about getting some training for for public speaking is that something again did you go and seek help with that or did you just start scribbling so what happened was I did I did an event um telling stories of, of governance and so on and I didn't know but in the audience there was a publisher and they came up to me at the end and they said Joe we'd like to publish a book on what you've been talking about that was my first book called the business rules and um and they were wonderful in terms of editing. There were a company called Piacticus who then sold out to Little Brown, who, of course, are a massive publishing company. And they, their editors were wonderful with me. Right. right. And since then, I've written a number for, of the different publishers and so on. But um, I did write in my own voice, and that is what I most enjoy. Yeah, okay. I, I, didn't, I didn't want to write academic books. It's not my style. 
Okay, yeah. And outside of your own publications, what would you recommend for, for listeners to, to, to read? It depends what they're... All oh, right. You know, yeah. what they're, I was just been listening to a fantastic podcast called How to Fail. Uh, okay. My children referred it to me, and it's absolutely brilliant. Okay. We'll add a link in our footnotes. I'll get that off you. We'll yeah. add a link into our footnotes as well as a link to some of your books on Amazon there and then sure, thank your, you. your profiles. No, not at all. It'd be good for uh, people to, to reach out and, uh, and pick those up. I think this is sort of a, a bit of a fear of failure. And this lady, you know, speaks, again, it's in her voice, you know, of all the things she's failed at and what she's learned from it. And I, this is, I only was listening to it yesterday, but obviously I was also reflecting in my book oh, gosh, this went wrong. This went horribly wrong. Oh, God, why did I do that? But from it, there are a series of things that you think, I won't do it that way again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had to fail to learn that. Yeah, a lot of the, I mean, I listen to a bit of, motiva- bit of motivational stuff and they talk about, you know, everything's, uh, failing's more important than the succession, succeeding part of things. And they, they, you take it back to your childhood and when you first try to walk and you fall over and then it's a failure and that's just, then carried on through your life isn't it in different yeah. formats so yeah fail, failure is not it's not a bad if anything it's a good thing and you should but try. as I was growing up you know that wasn't acceptable definitely you know and I failed my 11 plus and I got terrible O levels and so I considered myself a failure until this chap told me no you're not just haven't found your vocation yet yeah 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 I I, I could be wrong but I suspect that's part of what drives you now as well I suspect uh, oh, definitely, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So just uh, a, la- a last quick question with, certainly I'm not going to boast, but on the Isle of Man with lockdown finished and COVID, COVID sort of, certainly on the Isle of Man. There's, there's I know, no- all your restaurants are open now. Yeah, we're, we're all getting, we're all happily getting up, getting together and getting drunk now. Yeah, um, sounds fabulous. But, but, but from a business perspective, how has that, how's that affected yourself? Not the getting drunk bit, the, the COVID bit. <laughs> <laughs> we have never been as busy to be honest I just didn't know what would happen at this and at the start of it I asked my um, MD to reforecast the whole business assuming that we would lose a lot of business we haven't lost any we've run loads um, and I've then I've started these two new divisions one on crowdfunding and one on employee ownership trusts and it's just gone viral and so we are as busy as ever but Obviously, I do have some clients who are struggling and, and where I'm non-exec direct, I'm there to support them. And, and I totally appreciate businesses are struggling, but I do believe that it's the SME sector who will turn it round. We have to because it's our living. So we have got to make this work and we've got to be creative. And there's so much creativity going on there. You know, going on in businesses who are making things work because they've got no choice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, like I say, we've not. I mean, we we briefly met a couple of moments before the podcast. We'd not met before, but my my sort of initial instinct: you're obviously very driven. But I suspect you probably don't sleep much, uh, and you're you're very busy. Um, uh, actually, I do. I do like to sleep. I usually go right. to bed. I do go to bed early. I, I like to have eight hours sleep. Um, and I, I do like to sleep. I'm not saying I always achieve that, but I am very driven, and I am I am very very good at multitasking, and I am blessed with loads of energy. 
And whilst I'm the oldest person in my business, my team say, Joe, you've got more energy than any of us. Yeah. I'd imagine that bleeds into the team, that, that, that energy, I, enthusiasm, the drive. Um, it's so funny you should use the word high energy. I've been doing a lot of sort of Zoom presentations and so on instead of face-to-face. And that is the phrase that has often repeated to me. Joe, you are such high energy. And I, well, this is me. This is how I am. You know, yeah. I'm not... I don't switch it on and off. I am, this is, you know, if this is what high energy is, then clearly that is me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's obviously, uh, it's obviously going to help very much in business as well. So uh, what we'll do is we'll, as I mentioned, I said, we'll add in the footnotes if people want to reach out. I'm sure you'd be happy for people to reach out to you, Joe. We'll put on your LinkedIn website is wearefds.com. Correct. Uh, yeah. And then some some links to a couple of those books and that podcast you mentioned as well, which I'll add to my ever-growing list of things to listen yeah. and watch. So uh, thanks for joining us today, uh, Joe. It's been really interesting. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>